This is Melissa, and today is November the 2nd, 2023, and I am, well, I'm actually recording this on the 31st of October, which is Halloween, or in Christian cultures, it would be All Hallows' Eve, because tomorrow is All Saints' Day, All Hallows' Day, the Feast of Saints, the Feast of All Saints, the Feast of All Hallows, the Solemnity of All Saints, Hallow Mass, that's where you get Halloween. This is the Mass for all of the saints of the church, whether they're known or unknown. And then they, they will sometimes in churches celebrate the Feast of All Saints, which is just a Mass to be said, prayers to be said for everyone that you know who has passed away in the last year. So anyway, this is going up on the 2nd of November, and it is me by myself, and I'll tell you why. I was sick week before last, and if my body could talk, I think it was trying to tell me to take it easy, and that I just had the one body, and I needed to take better care of it, if I would. Thank you very much. And I was thinking about what I want to do with, you know, Alan's work and bringing it to you. And I think it's good that I write and it's good that I talk. And I like these talks where I have conversations with you and the redux and everything. It's good that I make videos. But I think that what I'd like to offer myself is a little bit of flexibility because there are things, I actually have several projects that I'm working on that I have not spoken about, not videos, but big projects regarding Alan's work. And I just need to have a little bit of time and flexibility to do other things. And, and you know, an example, a couple of people ordered the book this week, and I make those myself. And so what I do is I send the book to the copier and I print it out and then I put it on one of those little hand cranked machines that punches the hole and I put a nice clear frosted clear cover on it and a black backing and then it has those plastic ring binders the spiral binders and so I assemble all of that and when I got these orders I realized that I was out of the plastic covers the clear plastic covers I think I knew that I was dwindling down, but I hadn't taken the time to, you know, take stock of the situation. And I thought, oh, no big deal. I'll order some more. Well, when I called the company, they have to make them and then ship them out at the end of the week. So that's like a whole two-week setback. And, um, you know, I think by making them, they just have to cut them out on a big sheet of plastic to, you know be eight and a half by 11. But anyway, it's, it's all of these other little things that I have to do besides talking and writing and making videos that I have to somehow find time to do without neglecting to, you know, sleep every once in a while. So anyway, here I am. And yesterday I decided, well, that I would have a little bit of intake of propaganda. I actually like 
to take in a bit of propaganda on a regular basis so that I can see what is being put out there. And uh, sometimes I, I, I like to take the propaganda straight. I don't want to cut it with the ice of, you know, the alternative media or the ice of, you know, some kind of far out conspiracy rabbit holes. I just want to take the propaganda and take it straight. Sometimes I'll do that through like the Reuters channel or Euronews, but last night as I was skipping around the channels, I, I settled on CBC, and that's the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. I'm going to check in with Canada and see what's going on. Oh, there were a lot of stories. I just listened to one after another, watched one story and then the next story. And and one one thing that struck me I considered talking about is, you know, they're hyping up something, that something, that something. And it was just really important that everybody, you know, get those things that they need to get. And they interviewed one man who, you know, he's been quite concerned about something, and he has had eight of those things because, you know, got to do that thing, take care of yourself. So I thought, well, I could talk about that. But the next thing that came up was from a show that has been on the go for a long time called The Fifth Estate. And this was a, a rerun because I think that the story, whenever the fifth, the program first aired, was probably about five days ago. Six, maybe even by the time this goes up, it'll be a full, you know, six, maybe even seven days. But the story was that Buffy Saint Marie, a folk singer, who's kind of claimed Canada and the Cree Indians of Canada as her own was exposed by an investigative report that the Fifth Estate had done that she was actually not Cree, not Canadian Indian, had no Indian blood in her to speak, and was Caucasian, had not been adopted, you know. So I thought, well, this is interesting. So I sat back and listened. I was just sitting in front of the television. I did not have pen and paper, so I was just relying on my, you know, memory. And in fact, when I started watching it, I didn't realize that I might want to have taken some notes. There are a lot of you who aren't going to know who Buffy St. Marie is. She's 82 years old now, and she is a folk singer. And she came on the scene when folk was really big and being pushed. And Alan has used a song of hers, The Universal Soldier, that she wrote. She's also recorded it, but she was not the person who made it most famous. It was, it received its most fame by, from the recording done by the singer Donovan, and then later Glenn Campbell recorded it, and it also did very well. It was quite popular. Alan had used that on a blurb, and in fact, not that long ago, I lose track of time, but I'd say sometime in the last four or five months, I used a little bit of the Universal Soldier in a talk that I did and put up. Now, according to the Fifth Estate, she had a story that kind of changed over time. Her 
reminiscences. And I'm going to read you a little bit from The Hollywood Reporter, which is mostly an industry magazine newspaper. It comes out every day in Hollywood. And you'll you'll understand why I chose to read it to you from there, but it's kind of it's aimed you know at every you know for everybody, but people who work in Hollywood want to read that to find out what's going on, who's doing what, blah blah blah, what deal got made, etc. So this is the story that was published in the Hollywood Reporter on October the 28th. CBC investigation says Buffy St. Marie has falsely claimed her native identity. It alleges the singer-songwriter's white adoptive parents were in fact her biological parents. What I learned is that Buffy St. Marie had told people that she was born in Saskatchewan. And sometimes the story was that she was just put up for adoption by whoever her birth parents were in this tribe on, on a reservation in Canada. And an American family adopted her from Massachusetts, I think. Well, now, just think about that for a moment. Now, you know, I don't know what adoption laws were in 1941 when she was born, but why would an American family go to Canada to get a baby when there would be plenty of American babies? But that, So that's the first thing. And when she first started talking about the background many years ago, back in the 60s, she said that this American family went up and got her in Canada and brought her home and raised her as their own. Then later, the story changed a little bit, and she said that she had been part of the 60 Scoop. Now, the 60 Scoop is an interesting and very tragic part of Canadian history when the Canadian government literally scooped up babies and children, young children, from Indian families and put them out for adoption with Caucasian Canadian families to be assimilated into the culture. And, I mean, it's just horrific to think this happened, but there are a lot of really tragic and outrageous stories uh, in Canada about treatment of their native people. I mean, you'll, you'll find horrific stories in the U.S. too, but Canada really takes the biscuit, so to speak, for some terrible, terrible treatment of their indigenous people. Well, again, that doesn't make sense because the 60s scoop was called the 60s because it happened in the 1960s. And Buffy St. Marie would have been 20 in 1961. So that didn't add up. But the CBC had done, this investigation was quite intense. They sent a journalist down to the U.S., down to the records office in the town that um, she said she was adopted into this family. They found the birth certificate. It was the original birth certificate. The uh, clerk explained how the records were kept. It was very careful. Everything was in chronological order. 
she explained how had it been an adoption, it would have been filed differently, it would have looked different, etc., etc. So her birth family was a Caucasian American family. Her father was from Italy, and he had changed his name from Santa Maria to Saint Marie because of biases and prejudices against Italian Americans. Her mother had English ancestry. She was Caucasian. She looked like a Caucasian girl when you see the pictures of her young. And yeah, there's some coloring there with the darker hair that shows the influence of the father's Italian heritage. In her teen years, she developed a kind of a fascination slash obsession with the Indians of Canada. The, the Micmac was who she started off with. And I think later it was the Algonquin, but eventually she settled on the Cree. And the family was mystified. There are quotes from an uncle way back in the 70s who said, we have no idea why she has done this to the family. We have no idea why she would say that she was adopted. This, this, this is her family, or, you know, her parents. It's hurtful to the parents. She has, I think, a couple of brothers and a sister, but you know, she has these siblings. She had a completely uneventful, happy childhood, and her, her family loved her. Later on... She had a brother, I think he was five years older than her, and I believe his name was Alan. And Alan became a pilot, but before he became a commercial pilot, he had gone to Vietnam. And according to this, this um, investigative piece, the two of them sent letters back and forth when he was in Vietnam. They were, they were fairly close. They kept in contact. And they did end up for the piece uh, interviewing Alan's daughter. Alan passed away about five years ago, I think. Maybe longer, maybe ten years ago, but he's gone. So she had already started out on her career in the 60s. She had a bit of fame and acclaim. And just through a coincidence he landed a plane that he was flying and they the they deplaned and the pilot alan her brother realized hey that's my sister so he said hello buffy and they greeted each other they hugged she introduced him to the man that she was traveling with and she said that he was a producer and they shook hands he said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm Buffy's older brother, blah, blah. Well, I don't remember exactly the timing, but according to this investigative piece, the producer called Alan St. Marie and said, I want to talk to you about your sister. She said that she's adopted, and I just wanted to hear your reminiscences about growing up with her. And Alan said, I don't know why she's told you that, that she's adopted. I mean, this is her birth family. My mom and dad are her mother and father. I'm her brother. I'm her full 
biological brother. It's just kind of weird. Well, as it turns out, this producer was somebody who was involved with Sesame Street, and they had made an offer to Buffy recently um, that to come on to Sesame Street, which turned out to be a regular gig for her for a period of about five years. I think this was in 1975. Now, I certainly wasn't thinking about talking about this and putting it up as a real history. I was just kind of dragging my feet because I thought, well, I could talk to so-and-so, and I know so-and-so is getting maybe close to wanting to record something. But that's, you know, an aside before I get back to Buffy, is that I like to have time not just to answer some emails as the best that I can, but also to talk to people when I can, when I have time for that. And sometimes I'm talking to people that I know, but I like to have a Skype or a phone call with somebody that I maybe have been emailing back and forth with, but I haven't had a chance to speak to. And of course, I think any of you who would be thinking about doing an episode of Real History with me would probably, you know, appreciate an opportunity to talk to me on the phone once or twice. For some reason, some of you have expressed nervousness about doing this, and and I should just say, relax, don't worry, it's no big deal. But again, it's it's that, that word flexibility. I just want to have a little bit of time to, you know, relax and have some conversations and not have to be really rigid about saying, well, I must do it this way. This is how it has to be. And I think the very first episode of Real History I did was solo, and at that time I I may have even said something about the format was one that could give me a little bit of freedom to do different things, so today is a different thing. But back to when I got hooked into the story. This is what drew me in, and it's always that's the way my mind works. If I'm thinking about something that I want to write or talk about, I can I, I can be looking at something and it it hasn't hit me yet. It's maybe mildly interesting, but I don't see my way in. There's the, I don't have an angle yet. Well, I got the angle when they talked about Buffy's lawyer, her attorney. And this, my, you know, my eyes just flew open. If eyes can fly, (laughs) they did. Like, wow. Okay, now this is interesting. But it's moving on the screen. I can't pause it. It's in, you know, it's happening in real time, you know, my brother might be able to, you know, take a clicker and go, okay, here's how we're going to record that, and you can go back and blah, blah, blah. But I I wasn't able to do that. So I just had to sit there and count on my mind. And the way the camera showed the letter from the attorney, this is a letter that Buffy's attorney sent her brother, Alan. And the way that it showed the letter, I couldn't really make out the letterhead. So I couldn't see the law firm that way. And at the top, where, where below where you might have the name of the law firm, were just a stack of attorneys' names. It seemed like there must have been 40 or 50 of them listed in really fine font up at the top. And then there's the typed letter from the attorney to Alan. 
And then at the bottom, I'm like, okay, watch, look, look. And I could see the first name was Abraham. And then it, it went by so quickly. I'm like, was it sober? Was it Abraham sober or Abraham Somer? Or what was it? But I took it in and I filed it in my head to look at later. But this is basically what the letter said, because I didn't bother to uh, try to track down a transcript of it or anything. But the letter said, we understand that you are making some allegations and you are saying some things that are harmful to her that could be harmful to her career, her livelihood, or her economic, I think they use the word economic, her economic livelihood. And if you persist in doing this, we will not hesitate to use the full extent of the law to stop you. Okay, that was interesting. It got my attention. But what really nailed it for me in terms of, okay, this is interesting, is that Alan's daughter said, enclosed in this letter from the law firm was a handwritten letter from Buffy to my father, her brother, Alan. And then they show that letter. They unfold it and they show the letter. And the daughter said, this is so painful for me and I value my privacy so much that I never thought that I would speak about this. But you're here and you have asked to find out about this and this gives me an opportunity to address a very painful episode in my father's life and in our family. And she said, I think she was 10 at the time the letter arrived at the house. So she would have been born in 65. So they got this in 75. She said, I was only 10 when this letter arrived at the house. But she said, something that was this impactful and hurtful to the family. She said, we live in a small house and there was just no way that I was not going to know a little bit about what was going on. Uh, you know, she was paying attention, she was observing, and she knew how serious and hurtful this was. So the handwritten letter from Buffy to her father said, if you continue to tell people that I am uh, not adopted, that I am biological member of the family. I will expose you as a pedophile. I will tell everyone about how you sexually abused me when I was a child and how this went on and you have hurt me. And there was more to the letter, and they, you know, they shared a good portion of that in the program. But the first thing my mind went to is, okay, 
there is no way that Buffy got letterhead from this law firm, types up a letter from the lawyer, and then folds her handwritten letter in there and sends it out. Okay, that didn't happen. So what this means is that Buffy's attorney knew about the handwritten letter, knew all about it, knew what it said, and then he himself or his secretary, but someone in his office took Buffy's handwritten letter, folded it up, and enclosed it with their letter from the law firm and mailed it to her brother. So that was very interesting to me. And Buffy's brother communicated with the family, the parents. And he said, again, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, I've decided that based on Buffy's communication with me, what has come from her lawyer's office, I'm going to drop this. I'm not going to pursue it. And he said, all I can say is that it's just hard to believe that that this has happened to her, that she has become, again, a paraphrase here, but so corrupted, so contaminated, that she would do something like this to her family, to me, to you, her parents, to all of us. It's hard for me to believe that she has done this, but she has, and I'm going to leave it alone. So that happened in 1975. I finished watching the investigative piece, and then I went upstairs and sat down in front of my computer, and I looked up Abraham Sober Attorney. And I, I, I actually don't remember now if I got something back. I think I did. Um, but he was referred to as Abe Somer, S-O-M-E-R. And as it turns out, Mr. Somer passed away this year. So this is the first piece that I found. I'm going to read you a few things. I hope that you find this story as interesting as I do, but anyway. Abe Somer, 1938 to 2023. Abe Somer, the breaking deal maker who oversaw A&M's legal department, negotiated an epic deal for the Rolling Stones and had a client roster that included the Beach Boys, Mamas and the Papas, Neil Diamond, and The Doors, died Wednesday, August 16. He was 85. Abe's daughter Eve has confirmed his passing on social media and shared a photo of her dad with the two other giants who just left us, Jerry Moss and Clarence Avant. All right, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Here is a little snippet, and this is interesting 
because it was in something else that I was reading that told me the significance of this photograph that is in the piece, and I'll post this one too. This comes from something called Roger Friedman's Showbiz 411, Hollywood to the Hudson. R.I.P. Abe Somer, 85, lawyer at the center of every important record deal of the 60s and 70s, got the Rolling Stones their biggest contract. Now here is a picture on the cover, and I'm going to see, I looked up something. Okay, so here's the story of the photo that was in that article. George Harrison, album cover idea, Los Angeles, 1972. The photograph was taken by George Harrison's wife, Patty Boyd Harrison. And this was to be the cover, a potential cover idea for... Let's see here. I got so many tabs open up right now, but I think I can find it. The material world. Okay. Now that really struck me because you see, this is the way that it is. If you live to be old enough, you start to make a few connections and you start to see things. And one of the things that you see is amongst the people who sell you the idea of stars and uh, the people that we're supposed to get excited about and all these people who were supposed to have written all of this themselves and they did this, we get this idea that they're just so darn creative. So here we go. This was to have been an album cover for Living in the Material World the fourth studio album by English musician George Harrison. And remember, George Harrison was in the Beatles. Okay, released in 1973 on Apple Records. And remember, Apple Records for a while had the whole catalog of the Beatles songs, and there's a connection to Theo Adorno there. George Harrison, released in 1973 on Apple Records, as the follow-up to 1970's critically acclaimed All Things Must Pass and his pioneering charity project, The Concert for Bangladesh, it was among the most highly anticipated releases of that year. Now, living in the material world, who some decade and two or three years later or a year later, whatever, released material girl, because we are living in the material world, right? And I am a material girl. So this, this star-making town, this star-making industry, music, Hollywood, etc., that is supposedly so creative, it, it's really a machine. It's a machine, and it just cranks it out, and it takes a little bit, it cribs a bit from here and a bit from there, and, and there you go. It's a whole new thing, and you're a whole new generation. It's your generation, and you don't know. You don't know that that was, you know, the name of somebody's album from 20 years earlier. What do you care? You know, you like Madonna. You don't know anything about George Harrison. That's how easy it is. I'm talking about Buffy St. Marie. 
who of you know who she is? <laughs> you know? So it is the endless easy machine. So back to this article. There's the mansion. That is Abe Somer's mansion. And in front of it, the photograph that George Harrison's wife took, there's a banquet table. And there they are, the musicians, sitting down at the banquet table, having their feast on Abe Somer's property. And here's what that article said. On Friday morning in Los Angeles, there will be a private funeral for Abe Somer. The 85-year-old lawyer was at the red-hot center of the record and music business. For better or worse, all the major deals were made by Abe Somer. He died on Wednesday in Los Angeles after a short illness. Somer cut the deal with Atlantic Records' Ahmet Ertegun that gave the Rolling Stones the biggest contract of all time in 1971. Two years prior, it was Somer who flew into the Woodstock Music Festival, so his friend Jerry Moss of A&M Records, who also died this week, could see Joe Cocker perform and sign him. Clive Davis, another biggie, told me that it was Somer who invited him to the Monterey Pop Festival in 1968. Davis famously signed Janis Joplin right after her performance. Davis told me, I thought we were just going for fun, to see Columbia artists like Simon and Garfunkel in Blood, Sweat, and Tears. The weekend changed my life forever. All these people remained close friends for decades. Somer worked for his entire career at the now 100-year-old law firm Mitchell, Silverberg, and Nupp, where he was head of the music department. Some of the acts he represented included, and it goes back, you know, the Beach Boys, the Mamas and the Papas, Neil Diamond and the Doors. He was also best friends with Jack Nicholson and often represented him. Now, it says that he spent his entire career at this law firm, Mitchell, Silverberg, and Nupp, but he had a bump in his career when he was accused of sexually harassing his secretary, I think. And it's just, it's so disgusting. I don't want to share the details. I'll post the link. I don't like to think about, you know, it's just, ugh. So, you know, the stuff that he said, it's just yucky. And so there's that. Okay, so here, I'll read you this. This is kind of a sanitized version of that. Somer was a gigantic success, but had bumps in his career as well, including charges of sexual harassment in the early 1990s. But he was a beloved and loyal friend to dozens of artists and executives. He cut many deals for his friend, super producer Richard Perry, whose artists included Carly Simon, Ringo Starr, the Pointer Sisters, and Rod Stewart. He was also close friends with Moss, Herb Alpert, and Lou Adler, bringing Adler's owed records to A&M and launching Carol King's career with Tapestry. Earlier, when Adler had his hits with the Mamas and the Papas at Dunhill Records, it was Somer who made it all happen. Uh, how in was Abe? Patty Boyd Harrison took a famous photo at his house in 1972 for the cover of George Harrison's now classic album, Living in the Material World. The picture included Abe with Ringo Starr, Jim Horn, Klaus Wurman, George Harrison, Nicky Hopkins, Jim Keltner. When the album was released, it was used as the inside double gatefold. So that is a rest in peace. But at some point in his career, 
he ended up at a company in the legal department, and the company was called... It's now been taken over by Universal Publishing Group. I'm trying to find it here. Universal Publishing Group is like a giant eating machine that has just bought up a lot of people and a lot of companies. In August of 2000, UMPG acquired Rondor Music from Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss for roughly $400 million. So that's where Somer ended up for a while. It included former music publishing arms of A&M Records, IRS Records, Stax Records, and Shelter Records, as well as Sea of Tunes. The purchase added 60,000 copyrights to Universal's library. So this is a huge deal. So that is so interesting to me because it wasn't just any attorney that Buffy had. It wasn't just somebody who had some letterhead and said, back off. What you're talking about here, and you're not going to get it. See, this is what interested me in looking at the story in some of the industry magazines like The Hollywood Reporter is that they cover both what happened to Buffy St. Marie with this Fifth Estate expose or the passing of Abe Somer. It's all glossed over. You're not supposed to connect the dots. Even if you're in Hollywood and you're working in the industry, you're not supposed to connect the dots and see just how massive this machine is. It would be easy to call them gangsters, you know, entertainment gangsters. Because a strong-arm tactic like that on Buffy's brother is, it's gangsterism. That's a gangster tactic. But I just look at the whole thing and just see, you know, the way that Alan Watt would always talk to us about how stars are made. We're given this idea, oh, they were just, you know, so talented and they wrote, you know, such and such and they were just so amazing. No, you know, it's, it's this giant machine and it decides. The machine says, you're the star. This group are the stars. We deem you the it band right now. And we're going to put everything into you. So, when somebody like Abe Somer is coming down, you know, I don't know if her brother Alan had access, you know, who is this guy? Who is this law firm? Who are they? Or was it just the tone and then this handwritten letter accusing him of something that he, um, you know, my, my gut says no, didn't do, but, you know, I mean, she had just met him on the tarmac <laughs> and giving him a hug. So, uh, you know, you got to think a little bit. But when I'm looking at it, I just look at this massive, massive machine and how we're all duped into thinking that these people are so amazing and we worship them and we follow them. And the sad thing, it's about 
that is what indigenous people have already said. You know, she claimed a spot on the stage that could have been there for a true indigenous singer. But you see, that's not what the music industry wants. The music industry wants puppets that they can control. They can dictate the terms of the deal. They, you know, they if they're saying, we want you to write such and such a song, or we're going to give you such a song, and we're going to put your name on it, and this is the experience of indigenous people in Canada or around the world, that's a lot of control if it's a you know a real indigenous person who comes with pain and heartache who actually lived through the 60s scoop you're going to get a whole different level of pain and pathos that would come through the writing i would imagine now a little bit about buffy a couple more interesting things here and then i'll wrap it up for the day Buffy says here in the 1960s, in her early 20s, she toured alone, developing her craft and performing in various concert halls, folk music festivals, and First Nations communities across the United States, Canada, and abroad. She spent a considerable amount of time in the coffee houses of downtown Toronto's old Yorkville district, and New York City's Greenwich Village as part of the early to mid-1960s folk scene, often alongside other emerging Canadian contemporaries such as Leonard Cohen, Neil Young, and Joni Mitchell. Okay, listen up. Listen up. She also introduced Mitchell to Elliot Roberts, who became Mitchell's manager. They tell you so little about Buffy St. Marie on her wiki page. I could not find the history of who managed her, who her, her, her agents were, you know, the only little bit about a management team or a, you know, an advisory team was what I saw in the Fifth Estate, this letter to her brother coming from Abraham Somer, Abe Somer. So she's just a girl with a guitar, right? Traveling all over Canada and New York. And, and okay, so the Yorkville district, you've heard Alan talk about. He went to some clubs. He met the guy there and had the conversation where the fellow, you know, he's from, I think, England, but he'd been traveling. He, you know, he was a communist, and he was a, he was a communist organizer. He organized people. And this is where Alan said, they told me, oh, we'd love to have you back. We want you to play something more radical, more radical. And he finds out because the government is funding the coffee houses. So you can imagine this scene. But how did she get there? See, we don't know. All we can do is just kind of use our heads if we want to know about the system and how the system really works as opposed to what they tell us. And look at that sentence there. She also introduced Joni Mitchell to Elliot Roberts, who became Mitchell's manager. Well, who is Elliot Roberts? 
Elliot Roberts, born Elliot Rabinowitz, February 25, 1943, and died June 21, 2019, was an American record executive and music manager who co-founded Asylum Records, best known for helping to start and develop the careers of singer-songwriters from the late 1960s and 1970s, including those of Neil Young, whom he managed for over 50 years, and Joni Mitchell. So in the early 60s or the late 60s or in the mid 60s or wherever she was, you know, whenever she was in New Yorkville and met Joni Mitchell, Buffy St. Marie was so well connected that she was introducing people to this manager, Elliot Roberts. Doesn't say if it was her manager, but whatever. The woman was connected. He was born and grew up in the Bronx, New York City, to a Jewish family who fled Nazi persecution. After graduating from high school and dropping out of two colleges, Roberts attempted a career in acting before going to work for the William Morris Agency, where he met David Geffen, an agent at the firm. He became the manager of Joni Mitchell after hearing a tape provided by Buffy St. Marie and seeing Mitchell perform in New York. Okay, so there you go. We don't know, you know, who is managing the mysterious Buffy St. Marie at this time, you know. We don't know. But she's connecting people to Hollywood. So they both soon moved, they meaning Joni Mitchell and Buffy St. Marie. Now listen up. They both soon moved to Laurel Canyon in California. Uh, if I can find a link to the great Laurel Canyon series that exposes the connections to the military-industrial complex of a lot of the singer-songwriters that we're supposed to worship and think they're just so amazing, I'll, I'll put that up too. Um, after the band Buffalo Springfield split up in 1968, Mitchell persuaded him to manage the career of fellow Canadian Neil Young. He also managed Crosby Stills and Nash, America, and others. Roberts formed the Geffen Roberts Company with Geffen and helped Geffen to create Asylum Records in 1970, which merged with Electra Records in 1972. And it goes on and on. I'll skip all that here. Roberts also managed Tom Petty, Tracy Chapman, Bob Dylan, and the Cars. He was also associated with Jackson Brown, the Eagles, Talking Heads, Devo, Spiritualized, Mazzy Starr, Devondra Banhart, The Alarm, and others. All right. Amazing. Just amazing to me. It really is. Because it is such a case, you know, I mean, Alan would always say, be careful when they expose something or when somebody says, oh, I'm going to tell you the truth or I'm going to tell you what's going on here. It's what they leave out. It's the omissions. And to me, yeah, okay, she made up this story. But the, the, what is interesting to me is why? Why? And when you look at the team that is around her, it may not spell out why, but it's going to give you an awful lot of really good directions to go in your own thinking. So 
it's always good to be reminded, I think, that entertainment, music, film, television, whatever, and that, that we're going to put the Internet in there, social media, all these influencers, anybody that you're looking at that's famous with a huge following and you just think they're wonderful and you're going to dress like them, they've got a team behind them. And if their team, you know, decides that you're in the way, you just may get a letter from them, and that letter may have some innuendos from the, uh, you know, they're typewritten, and a few veiled threats that are typewritten, but they may include, you know, the little handwritten slip that in there, pedophilia, sexual abuse. Well, you know, the... the, the this is the same, you know, we're, these are the same people who run with the, you know, the real blackmailers. If you don't have something on somebody that you want to shut up, just make it up, eh? So I don't know. I, You know, frankly, I don't know anything about Buffy St. Marie uh, now, and I don't know if she wrote this song or if somebody wrote it and stuck her name on it and, you know, why that happened, to what end. Um, I always really liked the words, the lyrics to the song, and one of the reasons I like the lyrics is because, you know, it's putting a bit of responsibility on the soldier, too, you know, to look, you know, to take some responsibility for what he's involved in. But that's kind of a double-edged sword, you see, because soldiers wouldn't have to look in the mirror and make a decision if somebody else wasn't organizing forever wars. And this song would have been written about the same time that they tell us that Russia was behind you know, the peace movement. And though they've proven that in books and so forth, you know, that, you know, it was really Russia who was, you know, behind the, you know, Vietnam War era peace protests and all of that. Well, I don't know. I'm, I think it's kind of managed pretty seamlessly at the top. So here's the lyrics. He's five foot two and he's six feet four. He fights with missiles and with spears. He's all of 31 and he's only 17. Been a soldier for a thousand years. He's a Catholic, a Hindu, an atheist, a Jain, a Buddhist, and a Baptist, and a Jew. And he knows he shouldn't kill and he knows he always will. Kill you for me, my friend, and me for you. And he's fighting for Canada, he's fighting for France, he's fighting for the USA, and he's fighting for the Russians, and he's fighting for Japan, and he thinks we'll put an end to war this way. And he's fighting for democracy, he's fighting for the Reds. He says it's for the peace of all. He's the one who must decide who's to live and who's to die, and he never sees the writing on the wall. But without him, how would Hitler have condemned them at Laval? Without him, Caesar would have stood alone. He's the one who gives his body as a weapon of the war, and without him, all this killing can't go on. He's the universal soldier, and he really is to blame. His orders come from far away no more. They come from here and there, and you and me, and brothers can't you see. This is not the way we put the end to war." So, yeah, there's some good thoughts there, but there's also the spin, the rub. And the rub is, his orders don't come from you and me. 
he may comply, he may follow, he may go against his conscience, he may do something because he's bought the propaganda, but the propaganda is coming from on top, and these wars are for their reasons. And, you know, Labau, I read this, I've read these lyrics before, I've heard the song quite a few times, but only today was I struck by that. How would Hitler have condemned them at Labau? And I'm like, well, what? What went on at Labau, and how did Hitler condemn them, and where was this? I don't know anything about this. And so I look, and I find out that a lot of other people don't know about Labau, and there's some entries of people going, you know, what what happened in Labau? And the, the story, oh, because the mythology, the the origin myth around this song is just amazing. I'll put up a couple of links so that you can see that too. But the origin mythology is that Buffy St. Marie originally had the word Dachau. Hitler condemned them at Dachau. But when Donovan recorded the song, for whatever reason, he substituted uh, the name Labau. Well, I looked up Labau the way it was spelled on the lyrics L-O-B-A-U, or L-A-B-A-U, either way, I ended up at Lobau. It's a Vienna floodplain on the northern side of the Danube. It has been part of the Danube uh, something, I don't know how to pronounce that word, but anyway, National Park since 1996. There is also an oil harbor, and the Austrian army used the Lobau as a training ground, in, in addition to the water coming from the Alps, so it's a source of groundwater, etc. During the oil campaign of World War II, the Lobau oil refinery was bombed beginning on August 22. Now, Hitler wouldn't have done that. You know, none, none of this is making sense, but I didn't know about the oil campaign of World War II. I found that interesting. The Allied oil campaign of World War II pitted the RAF and the USAAF against facilities supplying Nazi Germany with petroleum oil and lubrication products. It formed part of the immense Allied strategy bombing effort during the war. The targets in Germany and in Axis-controlled Europe included refineries, synthetic fuel factories, storage depots, and other POL, that's petroleum oil and lubrication infrastructure. Well, <laughs> uh, yeah, so as it turns out, that probably wasn't the Lebau that uh, Donovan was thinking about or writing. That was just somebody who mistyped it because... When you do a little bit of homework on that word by people who are scratching their heads and wondering, then you come to this part of the origin myth of how that word got in there, the name of that town. Lebau was evidently, Lebau, L-I-E-B-A-U, was what the Germans called Lubauka, and that's a town in Poland and uh, the history in World War II, it said on May 7, 1945, the town was occupied by the Soviet Red Army in accordance 
to the Potsdam Agreement, the town's German population was totally expelled and the area was resettled by Poles, transferred from the former Eastern Poland annexed by the Soviet Union. The takeaway for me is oil campaign of World War II. Well, you know, it really does always come down. I mean, you know, they'll, you know, the story that we're told and what we buy and what's shoved down our throats and the way it is, is, well, of course we had to take out their petroleum, oil, and lubricant infrastructure, you know, because look what they were doing, look what they were doing, but it's resources, it's who controls the resources, it's what's going on in other parts of the world where refineries are being built up at the same time that others are being taken out. So, interesting. It's sad for people who had a hero there in Buffy St. Marie, for people who buy the accidental artist explanation of the entertainment business. Boom, there goes another one. And the timing's kind of interesting because Buffy St. Marie just announced in August, I believe, that she wasn't going to tour anymore. You know, her management team is gone. Her songs are still making somebody a lot of money because they're in the old Rondor Universal Library of Songs. Um, but maybe this was just the time, you know. What we're told by the CBC and the Fifth Estate was, oh, just some investigator got kind of curious about it. And she's investigated other people that have made claims to have indigenous, you know, ancestry, et cetera, et cetera. But... I wonder, I wonder, you know, I think it's a big machine and sometimes the machine has to throw somebody to the wolves for reasons that, that I don't know. I thank you for listening. Uh, next week, I can say that unless there's something going on with Neil Foster, Neil and I will be talking and having a real history and I hope that you will enjoy um, a more flexible schedule from me as I try to do some things that honor Alan and further the reach of his work and somehow make a little bit of time for keeping my body and my own life ticking along, so to speak. So thank you for listening and have a great week. Thank you.